Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the action comedy film Pain and Gain, directed by Michael Bay and written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Based on a true story, it stars Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson and Anthony Mackie as a trio of bodybuilders who incompetently kidnap and rob a wealthy businessman. So this was a Patreon request. Um, It was a birthday gift from one of our listeners to another listener. I don't have the name of the listener whose birthday gift it is. We're not anywhere near this person's birthday anymore. So like, happy birthday in the abstract sense. We hope you enjoy this episode. It's from your friend Morgan, another Morgan. Solidarity. So thank you very much. And this was a really interesting request because I feel like Michael Bay is someone who gets talked about a lot in terms of the question of like, can someone be an auteur if their movies are bad? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And he's like the example that gets pulled out because undeniably, all of his films are like by the same person. Yes, he has a directorial vision and voice. And yet most of them are like appalling. And then there are a couple like Armageddon, which I think is probably the most loved of his films. And then something like this, which has this kind of like cult following. I definitely remember people like film critics kind of like ironically liking this movie when it came out around 10 years ago, but I had never seen it. The only Michael Bay films I've seen, as I said at the end of last episode, I saw The Island when I was a teenager and I have technically seen Armageddon as a small child when I was way too young to see it. And it like scarred me deeply but I've never seen a Transformers movie like I really have a sense of him more through the cultural phenomenon of Michael Bay than his actual work so this was fascinating I mean I was completely unprepared for what I was getting into here I obviously have seen like a couple of Michael Bay movies like Armageddon I've seen either one or two Transformers movies obviously terrible but having not watched a trailer for this I was only kind of aware of this as being an action comedy movie starring Anthony Mackie and The Rock and apparently also Mark Wahlberg, which kind of passed me by until I googled the film. But um, I would say the first like half hour of this two hour and 10 minute movie, I was like, holy shit, is this Michael Bay's best movie? Because I was, I was very entertained. It was funny. It's like a very broad satire starring this unbearable meathead who's just completely just absolutely absorbed all of these horrible go-getter messages about the American dream and sort of scammy motivational speaking and all this like bullshit about working out and getting hench and all this stuff. And then after that kind of first half hour, it gets very dark (laughs) because, I mean, it's about them kidnapping this guy played by Tony Shellhub, like this businessman guy. And then they fully torture him. And then they kidnap another guy and like cut him to pieces. They like dismember someone. And I was watching this like, this is very gross because of the the way the film (laughs) portrays the dismemberments and so forth. And also it's based on a true story. So I was like, this film is in some ways kind of fun and entertaining and surprisingly witty for Michael Bay. And like the three lead actors, including the repulsive Mark Wahlberg, are pretty good. I mean, we'll discuss that more in a minute. But ethically speaking, my goodness. Well, I don't think it's as unusual as you would think, which doesn't make it, like, good, obviously. But 
I found this really interesting. I completely share your, like... Hmm. <laughs> like I mean, to me, bad. this is sort of like the film that people sound like they're talking about when they complain about The Wolf of Wall Street, where they're like, oh, The Wolf of Wall Street endorses all this horrible behavior. Yeah. And I'm like, I wouldn't say this film endorses dismembering someone, but you get the impression that Michael Bay was, like, really enjoying it. <laughs> yes, although I think, like, I was looking at some of the coverage and there was some critiques of it being like well the main characters are so sympathetic and i mean they're not really i did not find I that didn't, no, they're, at they're all. not sympathetic they're funny and goofy like they're definitely it's heavily fictionalized two of the lead characters are based on real guys and then one of them is like essentially made up so the rocks character is a composite character because in real life the real sun jim gang of kidnappers i was like way more of them than three yeah, and like even in interviews, they're saying, well, part of what made the movie interesting and part of what made the studio so freaked out about it was that there was no sympathetic character. So, like, I don't think the filmmakers, or by filmmakers, I mean like the, not just Michael Bay, like the apparatus around this movie is thinking about this as like, well, these lovable No, it's like they're are funny. Making, like, they're Especially because like, it opens <laughs> with this voiceover from Mark Wahlberg's character which is just so obviously poking fun at him like the film has no respect for him and this is one of the things about Michael Bay as a filmmaker which I always find kind of intriguing because he's famously one of America's foremost misogynist artists like legendarily sexist but he also hates men he like has no respect for men because when you watch the Transformers movies it's like this hideous disrespect and disgust in everything like the male protagonist does it's like absolutely he hates men as well and you watch this and you're like it's actually kind of a rare film that absolutely hates this type of like muscular guy but they're exactly what movie stars look like, right? They're like these huge roided up muscle guys who are obsessed with their appearance, which is what you have to be in order to look like what these men look like. And the whole film is like belittling them. Yeah, I want to read the two most popular reviews of this film on Letterboxd, which are by users Patrick Willems and Awesome Wells, respectively, which are a pure artistic expression from a man who hates humanity, <laughs> which like, yep. And uh, then the second is, on the basis of the Transformers films, I used to believe that Michael Bay hated women. However, having seen this film, it turns out he hates people. Full stop. (laughs) And like, I kind of think that that sums up what's going on here. I mean, we'll get into the sexism, etc. of this movie, which is truly repulsive. Like, he just can't engage with women at all. (laughs) But there's a way in which he's, he's depicting these men that is effectively satirical because he's just so disdainful of them and disgusted by them. And they're bad people and idiots. And the problem obviously is when you get to the point in the film where like they're literally murdering people who are real people in real life. And I do think that's a huge ethical problem. But I also think that part of what I found interesting to just think about with this movie as I was watching it was this in comparison with all of the, like, rip-from-the-headline stuff that's been made in the past few years, which, like, I was just writing about in an essay for Bustle, which I will link to in the show notes, which stuff like Pam and Tommy or something like I, Tanya, or, like, the OJ miniseries, which present themselves as, like, this is a feminist vindication of this thing that you didn't, didn't understand, and actually everyone was wrong, and we're here to correct the record. And I think... 
like, I'm sure there are individual people involved in those projects that have good intentions. Like, I don't want to say that everyone making those things are, like, cynical and bad. But ultimately, those projects are just, like, capitalistic exercises in making money for film studios, right? So what you're saying is there is sincerity to Michael Bay's vision. (laughs) Well, I think he's not pretending to have, like, a moral... I mean, this movie actually does have a point about America, but... I think that there's a lot of part of what I was arguing in this essay that I'll link to is that like there's a lot of grossness in those projects that I think kind of gets missed because they're masquerading as like morally good. And this movie does not give a shit about that at all, right? Like it's totally just like whatever, which again doesn't mean that this is like successful or excusable either. But I kind of was like, well, at least you're not trying to pretend that like you have the moral high ground here. I mean, his quote about this, because this was criticized when the movie came out, people were like, um, this seems like dubious. He was basically just like, whatever. (laughs) It's like, you think you can hurt me? I'm Michael Bay. (laughs) Correct. People ask me if I feel bad that I'm making fun of a crime. When you read the articles, because this was based, if we haven't already said, on this like incredibly long, long form piece of journalism by Pete Collins that was in the Miami New Times, which is an all-weekly in Miami. When you read these articles, some of the things that happened were so absurd that it was inherently funny. He chuckles as he pulls a glass balcony door shut against the driving rain. I just feel like that image adds to this. I mean, who returns a chainsaw with human hair stuck in it to Home Depot? (laughs) I didn't make that shit up. And like... No, you didn't. You did not. It's true. I mean, that's the thing, right? Because it's like, if someone like in real life slips in a banana peel and falls down a manhole cover and then their head gets run over by a car, it's tragedy, but it's also slapstick. And this is like an entire court case of that, where it's like people died in horrible ways and their lives were ruined. But also it was like a gang of the most ridiculous people on earth doing a bunch of slapstick, absurd, horrible crimes and acting like idiots on the witness stand. And it all takes place in Miami and was reported with just like, what seems to be gleeful entertainment value from the crime reporters. Yes. So again, this is this huge long piece by this guy, Pete Collins, right at the beginning of his career, which is interesting because the like length and obviously like intensiveness of the reporting is something you would imagine that like well, a more... I mean, surely the reason that will be is because when you're like really starting out, you get given the courtroom shift and sometimes you luck out and you get an interesting case and the rest of the time you're just fucking stuck on the courtroom shift. No, it's because he knew the private investigator. Oh, oh, oh okay, right. Well, there's the other way. <laughs> who's who's played by Ed Harris in the film, and he, like, ran into him, and Ed Harris was like, do you want to hear this crazy story? And he at first was like, no, like, I've done a bunch of crime stuff. And then Ed Harris's character, this re- investigator, was like, you really want to hear this story? Like, trust me. And so then he wound up going to every single day of the trial and sold the story. I don't think he was on staff. No, he wasn't on staff at this place because he had had a job as a writer at the Miami New Times, but lost his job after urinating on his editor's car. (laughs) I just don't even... Literally, so he writes this piece, this when the movie comes out, basically being like, it's so crazy that the story that was originally in this paper is now a movie. Like, here's my little retrospective about it. And I was reading this and I was like, I feel like this man's tone really explains this whole situation he was like i understand how these people work (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, he goes, I had been cursed with a vision for nearly 20 years. Don't believe me? Fuck you! Exclamation point. Despite all signs, I was sure that someone, somewhere, some way, would feel compelled, yes, duty-bound, to make a big-ass silver screen epic about pain and gain. My masterful crime time Miami comic thrill ride. Like, I, what? Who? <laughs> this is a man who would narrate his own audiobook, for sure. Oh, Big time. He talks about one of the women, like, falling off the witness stand, and then, like, the fact that they could all, like, see her genitals in this article, and, like, talks about various other women being, like, really hot. There's a- this is a Michael Bay quality to this gentleman in real life, so it's- I didn't read this whole original piece because it's 30,000 words long and I have a life, but I could see how Michael Bay reading this would be like, I understand this. Like, (laughs) this- my vision is, like, captured. In this man's writing. But yeah, he was doing the Transformers films, and this was like the movie he was desperate to make. For His like art film years. passion project that he did for <laughs> a small amount of money compared to the Transformers, and the lead actors signed on for a percentage rather than a salary, so they got to cut that budget down. And he did, he worked for scale, I think, which is like when you take the yeah. minimum that the director's guild allows like you, like 65k or something. To be yeah. Paid. yeah. But they all were clearly like super, super on board, which is very interesting. It was made for around $25 million, I believe, which is obviously massively less than the Transformers budgets, which I don't even want to think about how much money that is. And he basically gave the studio an ultimatum, like he was supposed to do it before the first and second Transformers movies, and then they moved up the release date of that second Transformers film, and he said he wouldn't direct the third one if they didn't let him do this, which is, like, quite a move. And again, the fact that this is, like, the the thing that he just had to do, it's very funny to me. (laughs) And I kind of liked a lot of it, but it just is so entertaining. Fun yet repulsive and morally repugnant. Yeah. Also hilarious to me that Marcus and McFeely, like their entire resume is just Marvel stuff and like this. I mean, don't forget Narnia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Marcus and McFeely are fascinating, right? Because it's like you look at their, their IMDb page and they are the like perfect writers for hire. Because their first movie is a TV movie about Peter Sellers, so just like a biopic about a comedian. And then they're immediately hired on to do Narnia, which is a charming and, in my opinion, genuinely lovely and sweet, authentic British children's film. And they do like another one. They also do like a crime comedy film. And then they're on for Captain America. And Captain America's one and two great movies. We have a podcast on The Winter Soldier, a movie that is deeply beloved to us both and I think is definitely one of the better written Marvel films. And then they go on to write like the shit Avengers movies for like the next decade, you know. And the next movie they're doing is like a bad looking Netflix thriller with with Chris Evans. But like pain and gain in the middle there. And it's like, it's fascinating as well. Because like when I was watching this during that kind of intro first half hour, I was like, wow, Marcus and McFeely can really like make themselves work to whatever the director asks for. Like it's a fun script. Wahlberg delivers it really well. And as mentioned, Mark Wahlberg, disgusting. Don't really think it's great that he's even making films, to be quite frank. <laughs> but um, he can, in some cases, be a good actor. Like, most of the time, he's a hack. And he kind of specializes in horrible macho roles. And that makes him really good casting for this. Because, like, this is an intentionally horrible macho role. 
rather than a slightly less self-aware horrible macho role. And then obviously star number two is Dwayne Johnson. And that is really quite fascinating because like this is, I think, I mean, I've obviously seen like a lot of movies with The Rock in them because he's kind of ubiquitous. And also I've watched every single Fast and Furious film and he is in them. But this is from like a slightly earlier period in his career where obviously he was already a huge star, but this kind of points toward an edgier career path that he did not go for because he cannily saw which way the wind was blowing in American cinema and realized that the wind was blowing steadily towards PG to PG-13 rated sexless action comedies. And he was like, this is like the last movie I imagine he did where he like, curses or takes drugs i mean unless he's got like a serious drama in there that i'm not aware of but um in this movie he's like beats up a priest for hitting on him he like takes cocaine he's an idiot who is obsessed with jesus and a hypocrite obviously like everyone else is like a horny misogynist although not as much as the other two anthony mackie's role is extremely demeaning in this movie the running joke with Anthony Mackie is that he is like emasculated by the fact that he is like the least muscular of the three guys. And he also like has a small dick and erectile dysfunction. And he is paired up with Rebel Wilson. So you've got this horrific twofer running joke where it's like, oh, the black guy loves fat women. And then you've got Rebel Wilson, who is just like one of the most offensive actresses in Hollywood, who is basically playing the same character she plays in everything. Appalling. <laughs> But, you know. <laughs> I think Rebel Wilson can be funny. I think she often gets handed garbage She definitely to do gets handed garbage, like... but I think she, she also takes the garbage. Well, I don't think she's probably getting very many offers. I'm sure. I'm like, sure. I'm hesitant to be like Rebel Wilson is a bad person. I mean, she. I wouldn't say bad person, but the roles she takes are bad. One could say the same about Anthony Mackie in this in this film, right? This conversation has been going on for a hundred years, yeah. <laughs> so I think we need to talk more about both Wahlberg and Dwayne Johnson because you just said, and we were texting, you know, over the weekend about this, that you were you were like, The Rock would never do this movie now. And like what Mark Wahlberg would also never in a million years do this movie now. So they're on these kind of interesting parallel paths in terms of like their stardom. And I think a lot of what is fascinating about this movie, basically everything that's fascinating about this movie is it as like a Hollywood text, both in terms of Bay, but also in terms of these two actors who are basically the two biggest male movie stars in America in terms of like box office cachet. Although like box office right now, who knows? It's a mystery, right? But I find Wahlberg, though personally uh, bad, really fascinating as a movie star. And part of that was that I saw a fair number of his things as like a teenager and a college student because he was from Boston. And his early career is really fascinating because it's a mix of both these kind of like boring action macho stuff. Like he's in the Italian job and he's in this thing called Four Brothers, yada, yada, yada. But he also is consistently making really interesting small films, right? So his big breakout is Boogie Nights, obviously, which is 97. He does Three Kings with David O. Russell in 1999. He's been in two James Gray movies, The Yards in 2000 and uh, We Own the Night in 2007. He is absolutely sensational in I Heart Huckabees, uh, another David O. Russell movie in 2004, playing uh i can't remember a fireman i think who's having an existential crisis of course <laughs> and, like that 
movie is so unbelievably good. I really need to watch it again. And part of what, I mean, he's really good at playing dumb guys. <laughs> I don't think he's a very smart person. But what's great about his Huckabee's performance is that it's not an easy role. Like, he's incredibly verbal in that movie because it's like a smart David O. Russell also a bad person, script. And so, like, he's doing all of this really, like, smart comedy stuff and, like, saying a lot of dialogue, but also has this thing, which he has a little bit in parts of this movie, where, like, he can play kind of, like, naive, and that can either be turned toward a nefarious way, which is the case in this movie, or kind of just, like, simple and, like, you know, innocent, which is the case in Huckabee's. And then the other big thing, that the two other, like, big movies he has before his career takes a, like, real turn are The Departed, which he's nominated for an Oscar for in 2006, where he is not playing a dumb guy. He's playing, like, the smart cop who realizes there's corruption in the Boston PD, which I think is maybe his best performance. And then he is also in The Fighter in 2010, playing the lead, which he's great in. And that's his last good movie. <laughs> and so this film comes out in 2013 and Ted comes out in 2012. So at this point, he's still willing to do these like raunchy sort of like questionable movies. The other guys, the Adam McKay movie also comes out in 2010 and he and Will Ferrell play police detective partners who are like unbelievably stupid, incompetent, bad cops. That movie is very funny. But basically, since this film, like, I haven't seen every one of his movies, needless to say, because most of them are appalling. I've seen almost none of them. The last movie he had out was the Uncharted film starring Tom Holland based in a video game, which is, this film doesn't, it's not real. It's a fake movie that doesn't exist. They spend a bajillion dollars on a washed down remake of Indiana Jones remade already. So... (laughs) Well, he's done a ton of movies with Peter Berg. They're very much like America. And like, he's always playing a hero, right? Which is the same thing as The Rock, who like needs to be the hero. Yeah, I I mean, I would say, yeah, it's like with Mark Wahlberg, he's the kind of person who will do an action movie based around the Boston bombings, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm like a cop that's saving people in the Boston bombings. And The Rock will be like playing the same character, but instead of the Boston bombings, it's like a giant orangutan has got loose, you know? <laughs> so it's like his his movies are just like lighter and sillier, which is fine. It's like, you know, different types of action star. He's like less gritty. Yes. Oh yeah, no, they make very different kinds yeah. of movies, but I think they're, they're both- bo- Which is why they're both able to coexist in such expensive franchises at the same time. Yes. But like, they're clearly both super, super aware of- their public image, right? And the fact that they are so popular and are super conscious about managing that at this point, as opposed to just making interesting films. Because, like, Mark Wahlberg is a very good actor and could easily make interesting small movies because he's so bankable, right? And, like, people obviously will still hire him despite all of his bad shit. Like, that's obviously not a problem for people, right? But he's choosing not to do that because he wants to make a ton of money. Like, that is the thing for him. And he's, like, obsessively Catholic now and, like, wakes up at three in the morning to work out. So that's his primary interest. But 
the quotes from the interview I read with Dwayne Johnson about making this movie were so interesting because he clearly felt a lot of trepidation about doing it because even at this time, this is like 10 years ago when they were shooting, this is kind of against his public image. His breakout movie is The Mummy Returns and he does The Scorpion King in 2001 and two. So like that's the point where he kind of begins to straddle the line between being an A-list movie star and a wrestler. And then like in the 2000s, he does a bunch of stupid movies. I would say the weirdest one he does is definitely Southland Tales. And then like in 2013, he does Pain and Gain. And then you just get, get this huge run of the stupidest action movies ever made. Most recently, Jungle Cruise, which like, how? How is that a real thing? I just don't. I always think about the one with like the skyscraper. <laughs> yes, where he's like, and, like the it's fire. just called like skyscraper and he's like jumping off. But that was the thing. There was like, there was a year yeah. where he had like three movies in really quick succession because he had one which was like about the San Andreas fault like explodes. And then he also had the one with all the giant orangutans and he also had skyscraper like in really quick succession and they were all the same movie. And I remember I did like a YouTube video that was kind of talking about costume design for male action heroes in modern action movies in America how like every single man wears the same grey t-shirt because it's got to be like the most neutral masculine outfit ever and in all of these movies Dwayne Johnson has like got his own wardrobe because it's like he definitely has to have like his shirts made because you can't like buy a shirt for The Rock and he is just wearing the same like black or grey t-shirt in every film so you could just take a screenshot and it's like he's here. Yeah so this character he's playing in this movie is definitely the most sympathetic yeah, I mean, he feels he does feel like he is definitely being preyed upon by the other two because Mark Wahlberg's yeah. character is just a monster. Like, he just has no morals at all and just wants to... He wants to exploit people and he has just completely accepted everything he's ever heard about hard work in America, but in a hypocritical sense because he's just like, oh, if you work hard, no pain, no gain, bullshit. And then The Rock is this guy who seems like he would pretty much just be like a sweet guy like he's just come out of jail he's finding it hard to get work he's really christian and he's really stupid and so when mark Wahlberg shows up and is like oh i've got this job for you like all the way through this story like even after they've kidnapped this guy he's the person who's trying to be nice to the guy who's been kidnapped but he is so malleable that he is just getting pushed around by mark Wahlberg's character and then anthony mackie is just this completely venal figure who just wants money and like wants to get his dick hard again. And I mean, these three characters are essentially entirely fictional. Like from what I read, Anthony Mackie's character in real life was just like an awful monster as well. And obviously The Rock's character is just invented because it does make for a good trio of characters if you've got like a silly Christian boy in the middle. Yes. And the guy who they kidnap initially is... Jewish, played by Tony Shalhoub. And so the, he both is like, well, I, I'm going to be like nice to this guy because he's actually kind of talking to me because he's just so desperate for like human contact. But then also is like trying to convert <laughs> yeah, him. And, like, and like Tony like yeah. pretends to be converted and it's like, God, this is grim. Because <laughs> you actually, it's like actually kind of a fairly good piece of characterization where you could actually see Tony's character making the mental calculation of like okay right what am I gonna like do to get through this absolute bullshit like he's he's sitting there like am I gonna have to deal with anti-semitism yeah, like on top you, of being kidnapped like see him preparing to hear like awful things and it's not that kind of anti-semitism it's just this guy being like we have to talk about Jesus now like this it's the time again the like quotes from Dwayne Johnson are so revealing 
because he basically, like, a week before shooting <laughs> was like, I don't think I can do this. And when he talks about the character, when they're doing press after the movie's done, has, like, thought about him a lot and, like, has, you know, has figured out all the various dimensions of the character, clearly, like, put a lot of himself into it. But Michael Bay, to get him to do the film, sent him this, like, long, eloquent letter being, like, you know, this audience is going to sympathize with you the most. And like, when they want to see kindness, they'll see it through you. And no one but you can play this part. And like, on and on and on. And I was like, the ego stroking that this man must have to do to like, manage these people. (laughs) And then that he's like, cluelessly saying this to a reporter. I was like, oh, oh. Again, you wonder about the Fast and Furious set and the feuds. There's a lot of ego happening. He literally says in this interview, I think that this movie is going to be a defining moment in my career. It was not. Actually, no, it was actually. It was a defining movie in his career because like, he made this movie and was like, ah, time to redirect. It was really successful. Like, It's not as though this was a flop and he was like, oh, can't do that again, right? It did really well. Obviously not like Fast and Furious well, but... It had like a, you know, 20, $25 million budget and made $86 million or something, which isn't a huge hit, but it totally is successful. But it was divisive. Right. The Rock wants to be loved by everyone, unless it's someone he has personally singled out as a person on his precise level to have a socially appropriate yeah, feud yeah. with, which is classic wrestling. And the reviews for this, yeah, were all over the place. So... I mean, he's good in the movie, which is kind of, like, <laughs> it's depressing, you know? Yeah, no, he's good. And it's like, obviously, it's like a really over-the-top, silly performance, but it's correct for the movie. And it's definitely, like I said, the most dynamic. I mean, it's always interesting when you look at kind of the trajectory of, like, action stars across Hollywood. It's like he is kind of our generation's Arnie, right? He's the current Arnold Schwarzenegger. And obviously, like, there is a different action star for each era of the culture and the rock is a much better actor than arnold but arnold did much more interesting and quirky roles because there was so much more flexibility and like the star vehicles you will get for arnold schwarzenegger you look at something like Conan the barbarian like that he film was pregnant is in bonkers. one movie as i recall yeah yeah he did like a pregnant comedy the movies he made were like so weird and because of like the way Hollywood is now, the movies that The Rock makes are aggressively Well, it's a combination normal. of Hollywood being inflexible and him being completely inflexible, right? And so then that leads to, you know, the skyscraper yeah. movie. It's just like, it's just a fake, it's just a fake thing. I mean, I think that the most interesting stuff about this film is the way that it is poking fun at this like super macho culture, which both of its big stars are obviously participating in and then willing to skewer in the movie. Like it's really fascinating to me that they were willing to do that. I mean, Wahlberg, as I was saying in my little rundown, like definitely was taking roles at this point, including the other guys that kind of, mocked if not like his persona explicitly the sort of macho ideal whereas now he just fully embodies that in the movies that he does yeah and i mean now anthony mackie is captain america and anthony mackie has made a lot of films but i've not really seen any of his more serious ones apart from like he did a bad horror movie recently 
Yeah, I mean, he started out as, like, an indie guy. He was in Half Nelson playing a drug dealer. It's a small part, but yeah. he's really great in that. I mean, his breakout role was, like, a gay coming out drama. I think he got snubbed for an Oscar for The Hurt Locker, and that was, like, the big snub that year. But he's fantastic in The Hurt Locker, playing, like, the straight man to Jeremy Renner's character. But he is not fantastic in the, well, <laughs> in the I films I've seen wonder... <laughs> I think he must have been really well directed in those two movies because I don't think he's a very good actor based on everything else I have seen in the years since. Or he just like stopped trying or like, I don't know. But like, I, he's not a name where like I see him in a film and at this point I'm like, ooh. Whereas that was the case for a while based on those early performances that I was really struck by. But obviously like directors have a lot to do with it too you know and like Jeremy Renner I think can be very good but can also be kind of boring and it depends a lot on the material but also of course the director and like he's sensational in the Hurt Locker and I think Catherine Bigelow is a great director right like she's obviously gets you know it's part of the reason that that cast was so good but there's literally like when they are chopping up or like sawing up the bodies in this Mark Wahlberg is wearing the Calvin Klein tidy whities that he wore in his famous Calvin Klein ad in the 90s. <laughs> like, there's oh one really gosh. brief shot of him from the front just wearing the tidy whities because, of course, they, like, strip down to, because they don't want their clothes to get covered in blood. Wow, I wonder if Calvin signed off on it. I have no idea. And then they um they put on, like, aprons. But they, you see him from behind in them, like, multiple times. And I just thought, oh my god. Like, obviously intentional. And the steroid thing, too, they are notably, like, roided up, even beyond what you would see in a lot of Hollywood movies. But that's such a part of the culture of Hollywood acting now, in terms of these big films, anyway. And the movie just has so like no respect for yeah. that. At I mean, all. you see them actually using injecting themselves with steroids. And the thing about the rock is like that is what the rock looks like and like we've we know what the rock's body has looked like for decades. Like he is just a very large man. Mark Wahlberg, God fucking knows what he's been doing to himself. But like with Anthony Mackie, because of like the role he's playing, he's the one who like feels inferior because he's not like as hench. Like Anthony Mackie is actually smaller in this movie than he is in the, his more recent roles. Because when you're Captain America, you do just have to go to the gym every day for 10 years. Yeah, it's bad. They're all fucking themselves up. Well, they're getting paid a lot of money. Yes. They've, they've decided it's worth but, it. Ugh. But I found that really interesting. And then specifically, like, the movie ties that to the idea of, like, American capitalism. Yeah. I mean, we've not mentioned yet, Ken Jeong has, like, an amazing... <laughs> like small role in this as a motivational speaker and he just gives these like incredibly facile speeches where he's like be a doer not a doter and then I had this beautiful wife and I left her and I've got like seven bitches and like it's precisely the kind of really over-the-top role that Ken Jeong is known for but he's really funny and it's a really good character because it's just so fucking obvious like it's impossible to like fully satirize that kind of motivational speaker because they're literally like that. Yeah, it's hard not to think about Tom Cruise and Magnolia in those parts, although that's specifically about having sex, his his motivational speaker thing, and that's much darker than this, which, like, Ken Jong is just playing a comedy role in this, but um, it's in that zone, and it's so designed to appeal to these, like, male idiots who just want to be told, well, if you just do it, 
that like everything will work out for you, right? And the idea of like you just have to take initiative and then like that's how your life's problems will be solved. But their version of taking initiative is just like kidnapping some guy and then they get to have nice houses and there's no like middle steps. (laughs) Yeah. And all of Mark Wahlberg's sort of plans for the kidnapping is like the other two are just so stupid that they just believe everything he says. And he's like, okay, we're going to like run this like a, you know, an operation, like because of our physical fitness, we are going to be even more efficient than the green berries. And like, he's clearly just like getting everything from action movies, but there's no actual plan. Like they dress up in ninja outfits and try and like knock someone over the head and fail to do it for two days. Yeah. And then there's this idea, which is clearly true that like he's lazy and just kind of wants to have a shortcut to get to like, the end goal of American society, which is to have, like, a huge, nice house, right? Yeah. But there's also a sense in the movie, I think, of... I don't want to give it too much credit, but there is a sense of that kind of just being fraudulent also, right? I mean, yeah. Tony Shalhoub's character is scum. Yeah, I mean, he is also really crooked. I mean, there's also, like, we've we've obviously spoken about the steroid situation, but... Just the fact that, like, he is extremely successful at, like, making his body amazing. Like, he's really good at working out. And you do get the impression he is also a pretty good personal trainer for the type of person who responds to that type of really intensive personal training. But the movie is, of course, very fatphobic. Lots of fat jokes in there. But there is also the element of it's, like, the one thing he actually does have control over is his body. And like, that is so much kind of tied into the whole sort of diet industrial complex and like telling people they can go to the gym. It's like, oh, you can be successful. You can be amazing. And it's like, even if you do manage to control something, which is like not necessarily connected to being rich, like obviously if you're rich, it's easier to be thin, but like, yeah, sure. You can go to the gym and get like really, really fit and hot. But like, that is actually much easier than getting super rich, which is almost impossible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he he kind of preys on Mackie's character through that, right? Because he has managed to get really fit Mackie, but is yeah. still, like, working some shitty job and, like, doesn't have any money. And there's this sort of voiceover at the end from Wahlberg, which basically just explains the themes of the film, which is normally not something I enjoy. But in this case, I was kind of like, you know what? Sure. Like, that's fine. (laughs) For the target audience of this movie. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like a pretty good summation of what the movie is doing, I think, which he talks about the sort of like just wanting to have the big house and whatever and basically says, but then I kind of want it to be better than everybody else, which I think is exactly a summation of how A, like capitalism in general, but B, the specific American desire to like win functions, right? Like all rich people don't think about the people who have less money. They think about the people who have more money because there's always somebody, unless you're literally like Bill Gates, who has more money, right? And so it's always looking up and this like desperate need to just keep going. And you do get the sense from him of just like needing that sense of superiority, which is obviously also tied to the masculinity thing and like it all kind of fits together. It's just that then there are other parts of the movie that are not good. Um, should we talk about the misogyny or should we get into Michael Bay more? Cause I do want to talk a bit more about him and like his whole deal. Cause there's, I mean, I discuss. feel like there's not actually a great deal to say about the misogyny. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's there, right? In the section where I was just purely like entertained in the first half hour, I was like, sure, this is sexist, but who cares? What am I here for? If I couldn't enjoy a bit of blatant sexism, I wouldn't be watching films. <laughs> uh, actually, it is something which would not be permitted nowadays. Like even 10 years later, I kind of don't think it would be allowed, even though obviously Michael Bay is still making movies, which are extremely recognizably Michael Bay. It's literally, it's just like they'll have someone show up and then they'll just be like incredibly degrading towards some women's like implants or something. I mean, I'm going to read some texts that you sent me a week ago when we were talking about burning, which I screenshotted intending to read them aloud last week. And then I forgot, which are... (laughs) I just think if writers are going to be sexist, they should be fun about it. Like in thrillers where there's a hot motorcycle chick or something. At least the Fast and the Furious movies are not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Which like, (laughs) I mean, this movie's not fun in its sexism, but it's not trying to pretend to be anything that it's not, right? No, no. I mean, I'm just like, look, this movie, I'm not going to be like, I want my money back, you know? (laughs) I signed up. I was like, yes, I will walk into like the garbage factory. (laughs) I mean, I think that obviously I agree with you in the sense that you're just like, well, I understand what's happening here and like, I'm prepared for it. It's also repulsive. And then like that combined with the racist jokes, you're just like, come on, man. Well, the difference between this and Fast and Furious, it's like Fast and Furious, it's completely fine. Because it's just like, would you like to see a woman's ass? And I'm like, fine. Whereas this, it's like Michael Bay is a monster. We know... (laughs) I mean, both in terms of like just purely what you're seeing on screen is like clearly unpleasant and cruel, but also we know what Michael Bay is like. Like we've heard Megan Fox talk about how horrible Michael Bay was to her. He just is very nasty. Like he's nasty to women. Yeah. And then there will be like a random comment or moment that's kind of pushing back or doing the opposite thing. And it's just like, what is happening? Like what? what are you doing and i mean in general the political outlook of this film was so strange to me because i was like you made the benghazi movie and like this is definitely like a critique of like american exceptionalism like what is what is happening like i just don't know what goes on in his brain i'm very confused i mean one of the things that our requester had sort of brought up which I was thinking about while watching, which was interesting, was this as sort of like his version of a Coen Brothers movie, which is mentioned in the press, like that that was an influence. I don't know if he was explicitly saying that or if it was just that critics watched it and were like, obviously this is influenced by the Coen Brothers because it clearly is. And I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about because there are ways in which it bears obvious similarities to something like Fargo, like the sort of gross dismemberment of the bodies at the end is yeah or that movie where burn after reading that's what i was thinking about the one where brad pitt is a stupid gym bunny yes this is around five years after burn after reading and it is so similar in so many ways like it has to have influenced this film and i am sure that he is someone who watches the coen brothers movies and admires them because basically everybody who likes movies does and there's something really cynical about a lot of those films which i think would appeal to him right like i feel like he would be like yes people do suck you're right but you watch this movie and you can kind of see the influence but it doesn't work that's because the coen brothers have sympathy for humanity yes and they're well there's better 
right? And I say this as someone who who kind of like found this movie entertaining and interesting in a lot of ways, but part of what was interesting to me about it was the ways in which it failed. So there were moments where I was laughing out loud. Like I think parts of it are quite funny, but it's not made like a comedy. The pacing is not correct for a comedy because that's not what he does. And so you have actors giving like really good comedic performances and a script that has jokes that are funny, but it's made like an action movie, right? And God, the music in this film is the pits. It's bad. And he lives in Miami. His first big movies was Bad Boys in 95, which is in Miami. And I think that was, I think that was sort of like how he fell in love with the city and like clearly is fascinated by this place, which is why he optioned this story like right when it was published and like really wanted to make this movie. So there's a level of like personal attachment to the material, which is why he really wanted to do it. But there's just something that like doesn't quite click. And, um, when we were talking before we started recording, we were just like looking at his Wikipedia page and I had forgotten that he went to Wesleyan University, which for those who don't know, is like a very good liberal arts college in Connecticut, which has one of the best undergraduate film programs in the United States and is for like serious film studies people. Like you can make films there, but it's not like going to UCLA or USC film school. Like it's like you write papers about historical films. And was, like, a beloved student of the film scholar Janine Basinger, who is, like, one of the premier scholars of, like, feminist, like, old Hollywood, you know, etc. And she wrote about Armageddon for the Criterion Collection and, like, writes about him coming into her office and being this, like, polite, lovely young man with these incredible still photographs. And he won the, like, prize for best student film his senior year, and, like, on and on and on. And there's just something about him that's, like, on the one hand, you clearly are an awful person, but also, like, what the fuck is happening in there? Like, I just don't... I mean, with that, I'm also just, like, you know, clearly he's just, like, a different person once he hit middle age than he was at 18. Like, maybe he was, like, a really sweet artist when he was 18 to 20. Now he's 57 years old, and he's Dracula. But I don't believe fundamentally that people just like completely have personality transformations. Like Hollywood definitely makes you worse and money makes you worse. But he's been making movies since 1995, which is the past 27 years. That's, you know, since he was 30 years old. So like, it's again, mysterious to me. And like, I have heard stories, uh, which I'm not going to repeat because I don't want to get sued about him being a horrible boss. Like, I'm not saying that like secretly he's a super nice guy. I just find the contradictions of what's going on here very peculiar. The fact that like, Janine Basinger, like, I've read stuff by, I've read, like, books by her. Like, she's an incredible scholar. And I just cannot imagine them having like, a conversation, let alone her being, like, my protege Michael Bay. Like, what? <laughs> but, you know, he's one of our foremost American filmmakers. Like, his movies all make money. And, um... He produced your beloved Black Sails, so... Yeah, yeah, which is hilarious. As far as I know, he had very little involvement, but it is very funny to see season one, which definitely has touches of Michael Bay. Partly, it's much more sexist. But also, season one of Black Sails, everyone is covered in fake tan, which as we know from the Transformers movies, he fucking wants everyone to be like orange, and then he'll like color correct everything to be orange and teal, it's his signature move. And then after season one, mysteriously, everyone has their natural skin tone. 
<laughs> it's like, ah, Michael Bay has uh, taken a step back, has he? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. I mean, I guess to to conclude, we should just say a bit more about the ethics problems with the film, because the family members of the victims were not happy, as you would imagine. Nor was the guy who got kidnapped, whose name is changed in the movie, whose real name was Mark Schiller. And he was really pissed off and like sued them because he was like, you've portrayed me as a horrible asshole. This is really upsetting and offensive. These people kidnapped and tortured me. However, he literally was arrested on the final day of their trial for multi-million dollar Medicare fraud, which- (laughs) One of the best kinds of fraud. Right. And he eventually went to prison on a- lighter sentence but um seems like he probably wasn't like the best guy which is not to say that this horrific experience that you know he went through should have been depicted in this manner but um it seems like everyone involved in this was like not great do you have any final thoughts uh no <laughs> that was very non-committal <laughs> <laughs> i feel like we've covered everything I mean, it was a pretty interesting phenomenon, especially as someone who hadn't seen the trailer. And I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? I hope that the happy birthday person has enjoyed their very peculiar gift. I'm sure that you could have predicted what our response was going to be. So I don't think this is something where someone's going to be wounded by us having mixed feelings about the film, uh, particularly due to uh, Michael Bay's notoriety. Yes. Definitely. And as I said, like, I found this really interesting, especially from like a Hollywood object perspective. And yeah, reading all the like local Miami coverage of this was very funny because it's always like when the Boston Globe covers a, you know, Boston set movie, like they're very excited about it. So this was this was the big thing, you know, at the time. For so many reasons, this would never be made today. And it was only made nine years ago. Hollywood has changed dramatically in the interview. Hollywood's years. changed dramatically, but Michael Bay is still making movies with titles like Ambulance, which to me feels like it ought to have an exclamation mark at the end of the title. It's a film where Jake Gyllenhaal either drives or steals an ambulance. I've seen stills of him and he is inside an ambulance and I believe has a gun. So that's pretty much what you'd expect. So next week, we are doing a very special episode, which is kind of a a two-parter. So we are doing the film Nosferatu, which is having its 100th birthday. It was made in 1922. There's various like re-releases and stuff. Don't sweat like finding the correct version if you want to watch it with us. It is, of course, for those who are not aware, the classic vampire movie. It was inspired by Dracula, but for legal reasons, it's technically not Dracula. But it was the first really big vampire movie. It's a silent movie. It's really fun. It's completely accessible. You can find it online easily, I'm sure. So we are going to cover Nosferatu, but we are also going to cover Shadow of the Vampire, which is a film that was made in 2000. And it is about the making of Nosferatu, but it is very much not what I would characterize as a typical kind of biopic film because it theorizes that the actor who played Nosferatu was in fact actually a vampire. 
Uh, it stars John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe, who I'm sure you can agree are very well cast in a historical film about a vampire. And it's just an incredibly well-drawn satire about the film industry, even though it's kind of skewering the silent German film industry of the 1920s. I saw this film this year and was like, this movie is great. I don't know what Morgan will think of it, but I loved it. And the cast is fantastic. Eddie Izzard has a little role in there. Carrie Elwes has a little role in there. You will enjoy yourselves, I think. So yeah, Nosferatu and Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah, I have obviously never seen Shadow of the Vampire. I had never heard of it until you proposed this episode. So I'm very curious about this. I did not even know the full premise until five seconds ago. So sounds great. I always love to watch Willem Dafoe in anything. And Nosferatu, obviously... A classic. If you do want to watch a restoration, there are, I think, a couple available. And I do feel like I should shout out Kino Lorber, who is sending me a screener. The one that I watched on YouTube a few years ago was appallingly bad quality. <laughs> so just depends on what Yeah, I mean, the important thing is it should look good. It should look good because this is a silent film. You want to be able to see something that looks nice. Yes. And you can all judge for that with your own eyes. Yes. But that should be really fun. It is kind of bonkers to think that, like, the art of cinema is... Obviously, more than 100 years old. It's like late 19th century. You get the little short, tiny short films. But like, totally Cinema full, as we like, recognize it in its most ultimate genre, which is a weird guy sucking blood out of a hot girl. 100 <laughs> years is, old! That is this. It's yeah. been around for 100 years. And uh, I'm really looking forward to rewatching this because I've not seen it in several years. Yeah. So check that out. We will also shortly have a bonus episode up on our Patreon in which we will be discussing uh, a film that went kind of viral very unexpectedly on Twitter a few weeks ago, which is the 1940s MGM musical The Pirate starring Gene Kelly. Oh my god, this movie is so good. It's so good. Gene (laughs) Kelly as a hot actor who masquerades as a pirate in order to woo Judy Garland, who wants to be kidnapped by a pirate. That's my best short summary. Yeah, I mean, I think when I watched this, I was like tweeting, this is a BDSM erotic thriller, but it's rated PG and made in like 1951 or something. (laughs) I think it's 47. Yeah. And it is fully a rape fantasy, but like in a way where you could watch it as a child and just be like, they're dancing. Like- and it's like cute and fun. And it's got songs by Cole Porter and Gene Kelly looks incredible in it. Oh, this is such an entertaining movie. I was, it's honestly one of the fav- my favorite movies I've seen in several months. Just it's like a delight. so great. And like completely bananas. Just, I was watching it with my eyebrows like up to my, <laughs> you know, hair. Just like, what the fuck? That is available in America on HBO Max if you would like to watch it. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, findable on the internet in general wherever but um such a fun movie so that will be available on our patreon patreon.com slash overinvested podcast if you would like to leave a rating or review on apple podcasts we would greatly appreciate it a five-star review in particular really helps with visibility and gabia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find my work on the daily dot and you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor and you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.